0: Chapter 7 of The Mysterious Stranger by Mark Twain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Patrick Seventy Nine. Chapter 7 Margaret announced a party and invited forty people. The date for it was seven days away. This was fine opportunity. Margaret's house stood by itself, and it could be easily watched. All the week it was watched night and day. Margaret's household went out and in as usual, but they carried nothing in their hands. And neither they nor others brought anything to the house. This was ascertained. Evidently, rations for forty people were being fetched. If they were furnished any sustenance, it would have to be made on the premises. It was true that Margaret went out with a basket every evening. But the spies ascertained that she always brought it back empty. The guests arrived at noon and filled the place. Father Adolf followed. Also, after a little while, the astrologer, without invitation. The spies had informed him that neither at the back nor the front had any parcels been brought in. He entered and found the eating and drinking going on finely, and everything progressing in a lively and festive way. He glanced round and perceived that many of the cooked delicacies and all of the native foreign fruits were of a perishable character, and he also recognized that these were fresh and perfect. No apparitions, no incantations, no thunder. Oh, that settled it. This was witchcraft. And not only that, but of a new kind, a kind never dreamed of before. It was a prodigious power, an illustrious power. He resolved to discover its secret. The announcement of it would resound throughout the world, penetrate to the remotest lands, paralyze all the nations with amazement, and carry his name with it. "'and make him renowned forever. "'It was a wonderful piece of luck, "'a splendid piece of luck. "'The glory of it made him dizzy. "'All the house made room for him. "'Margit politely seated him. Ursula ordered Godfrey to bring a special table for him. "'Then she decked it and furnished it "'and asked for his orders.' bring me what you will, he said, and the two servants brought supplies from the pantry, together with the white wine and the red, a bottle of each. The astrologer, who very likely had never seen such delicacy before, poured out a beaker of red wine, drank it off, poured another, then began to eat with a grand appetite. I was not expecting Satan, for it was more than a week I had seen or heard of him. But now he came in. I knew it by the feel, though people were in the way, and I could not see him. I heard him apologizing for intruding, and he was going away, but Margaret urged him to stay, and he thanked her and stayed. She brought him along, introducing him to the girls, and to Meadling, and to some of the elders. And there was quite a rustle of whispers. It's the young stranger. We hear so much about and can't get sight of. He is away so much. Oh, dear, dear, but he is beautiful. What is his name? Oh, Philip Traum. Ah, it fits. You see, Traum... Is German for dream. Oh, what does he do? Studying for the ministry, they say. His face is his fortune. He'll be a cardinal some day. Where is his home? A down somewhere in the tropics, they say. Has a rich uncle down there. And so on and so on. He made his way at once. Everybody was anxious to know him and to talk to him. Everybody noticed how cool and fresh it was, all of a sudden, and wondered at it, for they could see that the sun was beating down the same as before, outside, and the sky was clear of clouds, but no one guessed the reason, of course. The astrologer had drunk his second beaker. He poured out a third. He set the bottle down, and by accident he overturned it. He seized it before it was much spilled, and held it up to the light, saying, "Eh, What a pity, Hmm. it is the royal wine. Then his face lighted with joy, or triumph or something, and he said, Quick, bring a bowl. It was brought, a quart one. He took up that two-pint bottle and began to pour, went on pouring, and red liquor gurgling and gushing into the white bowl and rising higher and higher up its sides, everybody starting and holding their breath, and presently the bowl was full to the brim. Look at the bottle, he said, holding it up. It is full yet. I glanced at Satan, and in that moment he vanished. Then Father Adolf rose up, flushed and excited, crossed himself and began to thunder in his great voice. Oh, this house is bewitched and accursed. And people began to cry and shriek and crowd towards the door. ''I summoned this detected household to...'' His words were cut off short. His face became red and then purple, but he could not utter another sound. Then I saw Satan, a transparent film, melt into the astrologer's body. Then the astrologer put up his hand and apparently in his own voice said, ''Wait!'' "'Remain where you are.' "'All stopped where they stood. "'Bring a funnel.' "'Ursula brought it, trembling and scared, "'and they stuck it in the bottle "'and took up the great bowl "'and began to pour the wine back. "'The people gazing and dazed with astonishment, "'for they knew the bottle was already full before it began. "'He "'emptied the whole of the bowl into the bottle, "'then smiled out over the room, "'chuckled and said indifferently, "'It is nothing. Anybody can do it. "'With my powers I can even do much more.' "'Oh, a frightened cry burst out everywhere.' Oh my God he is possessed and there was a tumultuous rush for the door which swiftly emptied the house of all who did not belong in it except us boys and Meedling. we boys we knew the secret and would have told it if we could but we couldn't we were very thankful to Satan for furnishing that good help at the needful time Margaret was pale and crying. Meadly looked kind of petrified. Ursula the same, but Gottfried was the worst. He couldn't stand. He was so weak and scared. For he was of a witch family, you know, and it would be bad for him to be suspected. Agnes came loafing in, looking pious and unaware and wanted to rub up against Ursula and be petted. But Ursula was afraid of her and shrank away from her, but pretending she was not meaning any incivility, for she knew very well it wouldn't answer to have strained relations with that kind of a cat. But we boys took Agnes and petted her for Satan would not have befriended her if he had not had a good opinion of her, and that was endorsement enough for us. He seemed to trust anything that hadn't the moral sense. Outside, the guests, oh, panic-stricken, scattered in every direction and fled in a pitiable state of terror and such a tumult as they made with their running and sobbing and shrieking and shouting, that soon all the village came flocking from the houses to see what had happened. And they thronged the street and shouldered and jostled one another in excitement and fright. And then Father Adolf appeared, and they fell apart in two voles like the cloven red sea, and presently, down this lane, the astrologer came striding and mumbling. And there he passed the lane, surged back in packed masses, and fell silent with awe. And their eyes stared, and their breasts heaved, and several women fainted. And when he was gone by, the crowd swarmed together, and followed him at a distance talking excitedly and asking questions and finding out the facts, finding out the facts and passing them on to others with improvements, (laughs) improvements which soon enlarged the bowl of wine to a barrel and made the one bottle hold it all and yet remain empty to the last. When the astrologer reached the market square, he went straight to a juggler fantastically dressed, who was keeping three brass balls in the air, and took them from him, and faced round upon the approaching crowd, and said, This poor clown is ignorant of his art. Come forward and see an expert perform. So saying, he tossed the balls up one after another, and set them whirling in a slender bright oval in the air and then added another, then another, and another, and soon no one would see whence he got them, adding, 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 the oval lengthening all the time, his hands moving so swiftly that they were just a web or a blur and not distinguishable as hands, and such as counted said there were now a hundred balls in the air. The spinning great oval reached up 20 feet in the air and was a shining and glinting and a wonderful sight. Then he folded his arms and told the balls to go on spinning without his help. And they did it. After a couple of minutes he said, There, that will do. And the oval broke and came crashing down and the balls scattered abroad and rolled every wither and wherever one of them came the people fell back in dread and no one would touch it. It made him laugh and he scoffed at the people and called them cowards and old women. Then he turned and saw the tightrope and said foolish people were daily wasting their money to see a clumsy and ignorant varlet degrade that beautiful art. Now they should see the work of a master. With that he made a spring into the air and lit firm on the feet of the rope. Then he hopped the whole length of it back and forth on one foot with his hands clasped over his eyes. And next he began to throw somersaults both backwards and forwards And through twenty-seven the people murmured, for the astrologer was old and always before had been halting of movement and at times even lame. But he was nimble enough now and went on with his antics in the liveliest manner. Finally he sprang lightly down and walked away and passed up the road, and around the corner, and disappeared. Then that great, pale, silent, solid crowd drew a deep breath, and looked into one another's faces as if they said, Was it real? Did you see it? Or was it only I? And I was dreaming." Then they broke into a low murmur of talking and fell apart in couples and moved towards their homes, still talking in that odd way, with faces close together and laying a hand on an arm and making others such gestures as people make when they have been deeply impressed by something. "'Oh, we boys followed behind our fathers and listened,' catching all we could of what they said, and when they sat down in our house and continued their talk, they still had us for company. They were in a sad mood, for it was certain, they said, that disaster for the village must follow this awful visitation of witches and devils. Then my father remembered that Father Adolf had been struck dumb, "'at the moment of his denunciation. "'They have not ventured to lay their hands "'upon an anointed servant of God before,' he said, "'and how they could have dared it at this time "'I cannot make out, for he wore a crucifix. "'Isn't it so?' "'Oh, yes,' said the others, "'we saw it.' "'It is serious, friends.' It is very serious, always before we had a protection, and it has failed. The others shook, as with a sort of chill, and muttered those words over. It has failed. God has forsaken us. It is true, said Seppi Volmeyer's father. There is nowhere to look for help. the people will realize this,' said Nicholas's father, the judge, "'and despair will take away their courage and their energies. "'We have indeed fallen upon evil times.' "'He sighed, and Wollmeyer said in a troubled voice, "'The report of it all will go about the country, "'and our village will be shunned as being under the displeasure of God.' The golden stag will know hard times. Oh, true neighbor, said my father, all of us will suffer, all in repute, many in estate, and, oh, good God, what is it? That can come to finish us. Name it, um Gottes willen, the interdict. It smote like a thunderclap and they were like to swoon with the terror of it. Then the dread of this calamity roused their energies and they stopped brooding and began to consider ways to avert it. They discussed this, that and the other way and talked till the afternoon was far spent. Then confessed that at present they could arrive at no decision. So they parted sorrowfully with oppressed hearts which were filled with bodings, While they were saying their parting words, I slipped out and set my course for Market's house to see what was happening there. Oh, I met many people, but none of them greeted me. It ought to have been surprising, but it was not, for they were so distraught with fear and dread that they were not in their right minds, I think. They were white and haggard, and walked like persons in a dream, their eyes open, but seeing nothing, their lips moving, but uttering nothing, and worriedly clasping and unclasping the hands without knowing it. At markets, it was like a funeral. She and Wilhelm sat together on the sofa, but said nothing. "'not even holding hands. "'Both were steeped in gloom, "'and Margaret's eyes were red from crying she had been doing. "'She said, "'I have been begging him so, "'and come no more, "'and so save himself alive. "'I cannot bear to be his murderer. "'Oh, this house is bewitched, "'and no inmate will escape the fire.' but he will not go and he will be lost with the rest Wilhelm said he would not go if there was danger for her his place was by her and there he would remain then she began to cry again and it was all so mournful that I wished I had stayed away there was a knock now and Satan came in fresh and cheery and beautiful, and brought that viny atmosphere of his and changed the whole thing. He never said a word about what had been happening, nor about the awful fears which were freezing the blood in the hearts of the community, but began to talk and rattle on about all manner of gay and pleasant things, and next about music, an artful stroke, which cleared away the remnants of Margaret's depression, and brought her spirits and her interests broad awake. She had not heard anyone talk so well and knowingly on that subject before, and she was so uplifted by it and so charmed that what she was feeling lit up her face and came out in her words. And Wilhelm noticed it, and did not look as pleased as he ought to have done. And next Satan branched off into poetry and recited some, and did it well. And Margit was charmed again, and again Wilhelm was not as pleased as he ought to have been. And this time Margit noticed, and was remorseful. I fell asleep to pleasant music that night, the patter of rain upon the panes and the dull glowing of distant thunder. Away in the night Satan came and roused me and said, Come Come with me. me. Where Where shall we we go?" go? Anywhere, so it is with you. Then there was a fierce glare of sunlight, and he said, This is China. Oh, that was a grand surprise, and made me sort of drunk with vanity and gladness to think I had come so far. So much, much farther than anyone else in our village, including Bartle Spurling, who had such a great opinion of his travels. We buzzed around over the empire for more than half an hour, and saw the whole of it. Oh, it was wonderful, the spectacles we saw. And some were beautiful, but others were horrible to think. For instance, or however, I may go into that by and by, and also why Satan chose China for his excursion instead of another place. It would interrupt my tale to do it now. Finally we stopped flitting and lit. We sat upon a mountain commanding a vast landscape of mountain range and gorge and valley and plain and river, with cities and villages slumbering in the sunlight and a glimpse of blue sea at the farther verge. It was a tranquil and dreamy picture, beautiful to the eye and restful to the spirit. If we could only make a change like that whenever we wanted to, the world would be easier to live in than it is. For change of scene shifts the mind's burdens to other shoulders and banishes old shop-worn weariness from mind and body both. We talked together, and I had the idea of trying to reform Satan and persuade him to lead a better life. I told him all about the things he had been doing, and begged him to be more considerate and stop making people unhappy. I said I knew he did not mean any harm, but that he ought to stop and consider the possible consequences of a thing before launching it in that impulsive and random way of his. Then he would not make so much trouble. He was not hurt by this plain speech. He only looked amused and surprised. And then he said, What? I do random things? Oh, indeed, I never do. I stop and consider possible consequences. Where is the need? I know what the consequences are going to be. Always. Oh, Satan, then how could you do these things? Well, I will tell you, and you must understand if you can. You belong to a singular race. Every man is a suffering machine and a happiness machine combined. The two functions work together harmoniously with a fine and delicate precision on the give and take principle. For every happiness turned out in the one department, the other stands ready to modify it in the sorrow or a pain, maybe a dozen. In most cases, the man's life is about equally divided between happiness and unhappiness. When this is not the case, the unhappiness predominates. Always, never the other. Sometimes, a man's make and disposition are such that his misery machine is able to do nearly all the business. Such a man goes through life almost ignorant of what happiness is. Everything he touches, everything he does, brings a misfortune upon him. You have seen such people? To that kind of a person, life is not an advantage, is it? It is only a disaster sometimes for an hour's happiness a man's machinery makes him pay years of misery don't you know that it happens every now and then i will give you a case or two presently now the people of your village are nothing to me you know that don't you i did not like to speak out too flatly So I said I had suspected it. Well, it is true that they are nothing to me. It is not possible that they should be. The difference between them and me is abysmal, immeasurable. They have no intellect. No intellect? Nothing that resembles it. At a future time, I will examine what man calls his mind and give you the details of that chaos. Then you will see and understand. Men have nothing in common with me. There is no point of contact. They have foolish little feelings and foolish little vanities and impertinences and ambitions Their foolish little life is but a laugh, a sigh, and extinction. And they have no sense, only the moral sense. I will show you what I mean. Here is a red spider, not so big as a pin's head. Can you imagine an elephant being interested in him? Caring whether he is happy or isn't, whether he is wealthy or poor, or whether his sweetheart returns his love or not, or whether his mother is sick or well, or whether he is looked up to in society or not, or whether his enemies will smite him, or his friends desert him, or whether his hopes will suffer blight, or his political ambitions fail, or whether he shall die in the bosom of his family or neglected and despised in a foreign land. Well, these things can never be important to the elephant. They are nothing to him. He cannot shrink his sympathies to the microscopic size of them. Man is to me as the red spider is to the elephant. The elephant has nothing against the spider. He cannot get down to that remote level. I have nothing against man. The elephant is indifferent. I am indifferent. The elephant would not take the trouble to do the spider an ill turn. If he took the notion he might do him a good turn, if it came his way and cost nothing. I have done men good service, but no ill turns. The elephant lives a century, the spider a day. In power, intellect, and dignity, the one creature is separated from the other by a distance which is simply astronomical. Yet in these, as in all qualities, man is immeasurably further below me than is this wee spider below the elephant. Man's mind clumsily and tediously and laboriously patches little trivialities together and gets a result such as it is. My mind creates. Do you get the force of that? Creates anything it desires and in a moment creates without material, creates fluids, solids, colors, anything Everything out of the airy nothing which is called thought. A man imagines a silk thread, imagines a machine to make it, imagines a picture, and then by weeks of labor, embroiders it on canvas with the thread. I think the whole thing, and in a moment it is before you, created. I think a poem, music, the record of a game of chess, anything and it is there. This is the immortal mind, nothing is beyond its reach, nothing can obstruct my vision. The rocks are transparent to me and darkness is daylight. I do not need to open a book. I take the whole of its contents into my mind at a single glance through the cover. And in a million years I could not forget a single word of it or its place in the volume. Nothing goes on in the skull of man, bird, fish, insect or other creature. Which can be hidden from me. I pierce the learned man's brain with a single glance, and the treasures which cost him three score years to accumulate are mine. He can forget, and he does forget, but I retain. Now then, I perceive by your thoughts that you are understanding me fairly well. Let us proceed. Circumstances might so fall out that the elephant could like the spider, supposing he can see it, but he could not love it. His love is for his own kind, for his equals. An angel's love is sublime, adorable, divine, beyond the imagination of man, infinitely beyond it. But it is limited to his own august order. If it fell upon one of your race for only an instant, it would consume its object to ashes. No, we cannot love men, but we can be harmlessly indifferent to them. We can also like them, sometimes. I like you and the boys. I like Father Peter. And for your sakes, I am doing all these things for the villagers. He saw that I was thinking a sarcasm, and he explained his position. I have wrought well for the villagers, though it does not look like it on the surface. Your race never knows good fortune from ill. They are always mistaken the one for the other. It is because they cannot see into the future. What I am doing for the villagers will bear good fruit some day, in some cases to themselves, in others to unborn generations of men. No one will ever know that I was the cause, but it will be done none the less true, for all that. Among you boys, you have a game. You stand a row of bricks on end a few inches apart, you push a brick, it knocks its neighbor over, the neighbor knocks over the next brick, and so on till all the row is prostrate. That is human life. A child's first act knocks over the initial brick and the rest will follow inexorably if you could see into the future as i can you would see everything that was going to happen to that creature for nothing can change the order of its life after the first event has determined it that is nothing will change it because each act unfailingly begets an act that act begets another, and so on to the end, and the seer can look forward down the line and see just when each act is to have birth from cradle to grave. Oh, does God order the career? Fordain it? No. The man's circumstances and environment order it. His first act determines the second and all that follow after. But suppose, for argument's sake, that the man should skip one of these acts, an apparently trifling one, for instance. Suppose that it had been appointed that on a certain day, at a certain hour, and minute and second and fraction of a second he should go to the well and he didn't go that man's career would change utterly from that moment thence to the grave it would be wholly different from the career which his first act as a child had arranged for him indeed it might be that if he had gone to the well, he would have ended his career on a throne, and that omitting to do it would set him upon a career that would lead him to a beggary and a pauper's grave. For instance, if at any time, say in boyhood, Columbus had skipped the triflingest little link in the chain of acts projected and made inevitable by his first childish act. It would have changed his whole subsequent life, and he would have become a priest and died obscure in an Italian village. And America would not have been discovered for two centuries afterwards. I know this, to to skip any one of the billion acts in Columbus's chain would have wholly changed his life. I have examined his billion of possible careers, and in only one of them occurs the discovery of America. You people do not suspect that all of your acts are of one size and importance but it is true to to snatch snatch at an appointed fly is as big with fate for you as in any other appointed act oh as the conquering of the continent for instance yes now then no man ever does drop a link the thing has never happened. Even when he is trying to make up his mind as to whether he will do a thing or not, that itself is a link, an act, and has its proper place in his chain. And when he finally decides an act, that also was the thing which he was absolutely certain to do. You see now that a man will never drop a link in his chain. He cannot. If he made up his mind to try, that project would itself be an unavoidable link. A thought bound to occur to him at that precise moment and made certain by the first act of his babyhood Oh it seems so dismal he is a prisoner for life i said sorrowfully and cannot get free no of himself he cannot get away from the consequences of his first childish act but i can free him oh i looked up wistfully I have changed the careers of a number of your villagers. Well, I tried to thank him, but found it difficult and let it drop. I shall make some other changes. You know that little Lisa Brandt? Oh yes, everybody does. My mother says she is so sweet and so lovely that she is not like any other child. She says she will be the pride of the village when she grows up. And it's idle too, just as she is now. I, I shall, shall change, change her future. future. Oh, what, make it better, I asked. Yes. And I, I will, will change, change the future of, of Nicholas. Nicholas. I was glad this time, and said, I don't need to ask about his case. You will be sure to do generously by him. It is is my my intention. intention. Straight off I was building that great future of Nicky's in my imagination, and had already made a renowned general of him, and Hofmeister at the court. When I noticed that Satan was waiting for me to get ready to listen again. I was ashamed of having exposed my cheap imaginings to him and was expecting some sarcasms, but it did not happen. He proceeded with his subject. Nicky's Nicky's appointed appointed life is is 62 years. years. Oh, that's grand, I said. Lisa's is thirty-six. But as I told you, I shall change their lives and those ages. Two minutes and a quarter from now, Nicholas will wake out of his sleep and find the rain blowing in. It was appointed that he should turn over and go to sleep again. But I have appointed that he should get up and close the window first that trifle will change his career entirely he will rise in the morning two minutes later than the chain of his life had appointed him to arise by consequence thenceforth nothing will ever happen to him in accordance with the details of the old chain. He took out his watch and sat looking at it for a few moments, and then he said, Nicholas has risen to close the window. His life is changed. His new career has begun. There will be consequences. Oh, it made me feel creepy. It was uncanny. But for this change, certain things would happen, 12 days from now. For instance, Nicholas would save Lisa from drowning. He would arrive on the scene at exactly the right moment, four minutes past 10, the long ago appointed instant of time. And the water would be shoal, the achievement easy to attain. But he, he will, will arrive some seconds, seconds too late now. Lisa will have struggled, have struggled into deep water. He will, will do, do his, his best, but both will drown. Oh, Satan! Oh, dear Satan! I cried with the tears rising in my eyes. Oh, save them! Don't let it happen! I can't bear to lose Nicholas. He is my loving playmate and friend. And think of Lisa's poor mother. I clung to him and begged and pleaded, but he was not moved. He made me sit down again and told me I must hear him out. I have changed Nicholas's life, and this has changed Lisa's. If I had not done this, Nicholas would save Lisa. Then he would catch a cold from his drenching. One of your race's fantastic and desolating scarlet fevers would follow with pathetic after-effects. For forty-six years, he would lie in his bed a paralytic log, deaf, dumb, blind. And praying night and day for the blessed relief of death. Shall I change his life back? Oh, no! Oh, not for the world! In charity and pity, leave it as it is! It is best so. I could not have changed any other link in his life and done him so good a service. He had a possible billion careers, but not one of them was worth living. They were charged full with miseries and disasters. But for my intervention he would do his brave deed twelve days from now. A deed begun and ended in six minutes and get for all reward those 46 years of sorrow and suffering I told you of. It is one of the cases I was thinking of a while ago when I said that sometimes an act which brings the actor an hour's happiness and self-satisfaction is paid for or punished by years of suffering. Oh, I wondered what poor Lisa's early death would save her from. He answered my thought. From From ten ten years years of pain pain and slow recovery recovery from an accident, and and then from nineteen years years pollution, shame, depravity, 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 crime, ending with with death at the hands of the the executioner. executioner, Twelve days hence, she will die. Her mother was well, she would save her life if she could. Am I not kinder than her mother? Oh yes, oh indeed, yes. And wiser. Father Peter's case is coming on presently. He will be acquitted through unassailable proofs of his innocence. Oh, why, Satan? How can that be? Do you really think it? Indeed, I know it. His good name will be restored and the rest of his life will be happy. Oh, I can believe it! To restore his good name will have that effect. His happiness will not proceed from that cause. I shall change his life that day for his good. He will never know his good name has been restored. In my mind, and modestly, I asked for particulars, but Satan paid no attention to my thought. Next, my mind wandered to the astrologer, and I wondered where he might be. In a moon, (laughs) said Satan, with a fleeting sound which I believed was a chuckle. I've got him on the cold side of it too. He doesn't know where he is and is not having a pleasant time. Still, it is good enough for him, a good place for his star studies. I shall need him presently. "'then I shall bring him back and possess him again. "'He has a long and cruel and odious life before him, "'but I will change that, "'for I have no feeling against him "'and am quite willing to do him a kindness. "'I think I shall get him burned.' Oh, he had such strange notions of kindness. But angels are made so, and do not know any better. Their ways are not like our ways. And, besides, human beings are nothing to them. They think they are only freaks. It seems to me odd that he should put the astrologer so far away. He could have dumped him in. Germany, just as well, there he would be handy. Far away, said Satan, to me, no place is far away. Distance does not exist for me. The sun is less than a hundred million miles from here, and the light that is falling upon us has taken eight minutes to come. But I can make that flight, or any other, in a fraction of time so minute that it cannot be measured by a watch. I have but to think of the journey, and it is accomplished. I held out my hand and said, The light lies upon it. Think it into a glass of wine, Satan. And he did it. I drank the vine. Break the glass, he said, and I broke it. There, you see, it is real. The villagers thought the brass balls were magic stuff and as perishable as smoke. They were afraid to touch them. You are a curious lot, your race. But come along, I have business. I will put you to bed. Said and done, then he was gone. But his voice came back to me through the rain and darkness, saying, Yes, tell Sepi, but no other. It was the answer to my thought. End of chapter 7